Welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Ingrid Cochran, and today we're going to have really another episode dedicated to the issue of gun violence and gun control. Um, As most know, over the holiday weekend, we had yet another kind of high profile mass shooting. This time it was during a Independence Day parade in the Chicago suburb of Highland Park. And so again, just to revisit this year, 2022 has really been a record-breaking year when it comes to mass shootings. And that is definitely reflected in our uh, mainstream media. Uh, But one thing that I have noticed that um, the way that we look at uh, our perceptions around these types of um, high-profile gun incidents and how it feeds the issue of the gun control debate is, you know, mass shootings, even though they're much more frequent now this year than ever before, they're a very small percentage of our gun violence here in America. Uh, A lot of our um, gun violence is really based in communities and um, around the issues of domestic violence. Uh, And so it really is um, concerning this increase in gun violence across the board, but we really do need to have a nuanced conversation about how gun violence is not just about these high profile active shooter school shooting situations, but it is very pervasive in our culture and it is extremely impactful in poor, um, low income communities, um, black communities, Latino communities. And so we want to have that conversation today Um Our guest today is um, community organizer and advocate, um, Timothy Hughes. And what we'll do today is we're going to kind of dive into, um, you know, why we see certain acts of gun violence as um, more, you know, high profile, more impactful when really we have a gun violence epidemic in this country that is really based in communities and how we can really begin to look at this issue of gun violence in a real way and be more solutions focused. So, Timothy, thank you for joining us today. Um, Please introduce yourself to our audience. Ingrid, thank you so much for having me uh, here today. Uh, My name is Timothy Hughes. My pronouns are he, him, and his. Uh, I'm a native of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, um, but have been building power and organizing in Nashville, Tennessee, for a number of years, probably uh, more years than I care to say, <laughs> uh, maybe more like 20 years here uh, in, in Nashville, uh, 10 of them as a community organizer. Um, a lot of the work that I do centers public policy and social justice. Uh, and so we try to take a policy lens uh, to the challenges that we face in community. Um, but the issue of community gun violence uh, in particular uh, is one that's been a very important one for the work that I do with a number of grassroots coalitions and organizations, among them uh, groups like Gideon's Army, on which I sit on the board. Uh, Rashida Fatuga is the founder of Gideon's Army and uh, and really uh, started the organization to address 
issues related to the school to prison pipeline, uh, the kind of feeders into criminal activity uh, in the city of Nashville and in the community of North Nashville in particular, which at the time uh, that she founded Gideon's Army was going through a tremendous amount of change. Um, change in terms of population growth and density. Um, later In later years, around 2018, the Brookings Institution uh, would describe North Nashville, specifically the 37208 zip code in which Gideon's Army does the bulk of its work um, at the heart of what was at the time in 2018, the highest formerly incarcerated community or population per capita in the country. Uh, there was a lot of community violence, a lot of poverty, and still is in many ways a number of uh, very specific challenges, which I'm hoping to be able to talk a little bit about uh, later in my uh, remarks. Um, but I mentioned North Nashville and I mentioned the work of Gideon's Army and, and some of the coalition partners there in the community because there are a lot of folks who are impacted by this issue of gun violence. Uh, a number of folks who have been suffering uh, in many ways uh, without the ability to amplify their voices uh, and to bring about the kind of change that they want to seek happen in, in their community uh, as a result of many, many decades of uh, challenges, gentrification being among the chief ones currently. Uh, we're all going through the ongoing pandemic of COVID-19, uh, but before COVID-19, there was a tremendous amount of poverty uh, and lack of access to quality uh, education and resources in places like North Nashville. So uh, when we talk about the, the holistic manner that we've got to address solutions, um, it rem I'm reminded uh, both of the, the challenges, the tremendous trauma that the North Nashville community has uh, experienced, but also uh, some of the amazing and incredible leaders who have emerged from that community and who were a part of helping to create it uh, as a bastion of Black achievement and Black opportunity for working people uh, in the 1950s and 60s prior to the interstate highway that was driven directly through North Nashville as a part of the highway expansion projects of the time. Uh, also, folks who are familiar with Nashville will know North Nashville great, uh, a great deal because um, the North Nashville community was the epicenter, I mentioned, of a black economic opportunity and political power, uh, but was also the seat and, and remains the seat of a number of uh, historically black uh, institutions, HBCUs in particular, uh, uh, Fisk University, uh, the university uh, from which I uh, am an uh, alumnus, uh, is also in North Nashville, American Baptist College, uh, um, which uh, trained John Lewis. Um, uh, he was also a student at Fisk University as well. Uh, even today, um, um, there was uh, an effort to honor the life and legacy of a tremendous leader, Ms. Diane Nash, who was a student at Fisk University in the 1960s and was very involved in uh, what later became the counter sit-ins and gave impetus to um, one of the premier uh, civil rights actions uh, that desegregated lunch counters here uh, in the city of Nashville and led to the growth of the Freedom Rides. Uh, there were a number of folks uh, in the 1960s who were a part of that work, and many of them got their training, their education um, uh, at institutions like American Baptist College, Fisk University, uh, Meharrie Medical College, and Tennessee State University, which are stalwart institutions in North Nashville um, and, and, and remain to this day uh, one of the, the great bastions or many of the great bastions of hope uh, for a number of folks who live in 
work in uh, and, and bring, uh, get uh, their, their support and their growth from that community. So uh, shout out to Diane Nash, to John Lewis, to the many uh, folks whose names we will never know, uh, who helped to make North Nashville what it has become uh, and who are in many ways uh, contributing to its, its, uh, its renaissance uh, in this moment and trying to help it to be uh, as great as we know it can be. Thank you. I, I think, you know, in what you're saying, you've brought in a lot of history and a lot of work um, that has kind of you know laid the path for you. And that has really brought you into the space where you are um, really dedicated to your community. And it seems like, you know, your lived experience has also brought you to this work around community um, violence and addressing um all, all sorts of community issues, but it's specifically how we can curb community violence. Um, can you talk a little bit about your lived experience? Absolutely. Uh, I mentioned, um, and I generally do whenever I introduce myself, make mention of the fact that I grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. That is uh, a very uh, anchoring um, um, uh, fact about my life. Um, I am a, a military brat or I grew up in a military family. Uh, my father was in the United States Air Force and later retired from the Air Force and joined uh, the local police department in Baton Rouge. My mother was a school teacher. And so I had the benefit of living and growing up in a two parent working class home. But I grew up, uh, I moved 15 times in 17 years as a child. And so I was always in kind of a new neighborhood, a new school, a new environment. Uh, and it forced me to kind of come out of my comfort zone to, to meet and build relationships with the many areas and many communities uh, that uh, were, were formative in my life. Um, and as I was growing up, um, as most people do, I collected a group of friends. And over the years, there were about 10 of us who would kind of hang out together uh, in various places throughout the city of Baton Rouge. And, uh, and you know, on a time or two, you know, I, did, I got into a little bit of, you know, trouble, not, not bad trouble. You know, it wasn't necessarily good trouble, but, you know, we would get up to shenanigans. We would go in the neighborhood and, you know, there were some uh, kids in my crew who, you know, we used to do uh, some graffiti and some artwork. And maybe there was a building or two that was uh, was in disrepair. And so we would go into that building and we would skate around and, you know, kind of throw rocks at the windows, you know, silly hijinks as a child. Uh, but because my dad was uh, was involved in my life and, you know, and, and also was in law enforcement, um, he was always on the lookout. There were lots and lots of eyes on me and my, my friends in the community. And so the neighborhood raised a lot of us neighborhood kids. Um, but as I got older uh, and had the opportunity uh, to go away to college, to come to Fisk University, uh, where I, I studied uh, religion philosophy and graduated with a degree in philosophy and business administration, uh, got to work uh, in a number of different corporate environments uh, and later became a community organizer, I began to notice that many of the kids that I grew up with uh, who were from my same neighborhood had got into the same hijinks and, and, and things that we did as children. Uh, many of those kids' lives, their trajectories, uh, went in a different direction than mine. As a matter of fact, of the 10 folks who rolled with the crew that I rolled with, uh, I remain, I believe, the only one who is still uh, either um, not incarcerated in a, a detention center uh, for an extended period of time or uh, um, who remains alive. And I'm in my 40s. Uh, and so that lived reality, that experience of losing so many people, um, many of them lost to gun violence. 
uh, was something that was very formative and, and shaped so much about who I became as, as an adult um, and, and in, influences a lot of the work that I do, particularly around uh, efforts to curb community violence and to address issues related to gun violence because so many of the people I know and that I grew up with unfortunately did not make it uh, to, to survive to see uh, you know, graduation from, from college or university. Um, some of them didn't even graduate high school uh, before they were impacted by the criminal legal system or unfortunately lost their lives many, many times to, uh, to gun violence. So uh, it's an important issue for me uh, because of the community that I grew up in and, and the ways in which it's impacted the people that uh, matter most to me, my family, my friends, those who I grew up with and, and have relationship with, but also uh, because the issue of gun violence is preventable. A lot of people think that we have to live in this life, in this environment where community violence is just a fact of life. But the reality is there are communities that are, that are addressing the issue of uh, community violence, specifically things like gun violence, uh, in ways that actually can be applicable to communities like North Nashville, communities in Baton Rouge where I grew up, uh, communities all over the country. And so talking about the ways in which we can address that trauma, try to figure out the ways in which we're contributing, either by our lack of investment and resources or by our lack of education uh, as a practice uh, in many of those communities that have been deeply traumatized and impacted, and the ways in which many communities have leaders who are making contributions that we simply need to amplify and support uh, to make sure that we're addressing those issues of community uh, violence and uh, address interrupting uh, much of the community violence that's happening is why I am motivated to do this work and why uh, I continue uh, and have continued to do it uh, for so many years. Yeah. Um, one thing that you mentioned was, you know, that gun violence is preventable. And this is an interesting statement in this day and age as we kind of grapple with this gun control debate where essentially um, one side or you know, it's well, especially in, in the political space, we are essentially saying that, you know, it's just a part of our society that in, in order to address it, we just need to have more guns <laughs> so that those who, you know, the, so people can be the good guy with the gun as opposed to the, to, um, as opposed to the bad guy with the gun. And so this brings up a, a lot um, here. First, you know, just kind of our perception around how we can address this issue is, is deeply impacted by, you know, the understanding that it is preventable. Um, and then, you know, as you talked about kind of your background and your upbringing, you know, it made me think about how in general, when it comes to community violence, um, our perception in this country is that it is a, a cultural issue. And so um, as we reflect on kind of these active shooter situations or school shootings, we, um, which are um, devastating for sure, but just rare, um, we reflect on how, you know, these individuals, we call them lone wolves, or they might be tied to, um, and terrorist organizations, or we have a very clear message around them. Um, however, we don't really talk about um, community violence with the exception of that um, our belief system in, in this country is that, you know, these are 
um, cultures that are, you know, focused on criminality. Um, this is reflected in how we see, you know, issues like uh, hip hop music or um, uh, gang culture. Uh, we tend to say that issues in um, Latino communities, African-American communities um, can't be solved, that they're um, culture driven. And um, we've kind of really given up as a country on solving the issue. Um, why do you think that is? And how does that connect to kind of our gun control debate? Why is it that we only are driven to really um, push for um, legitimate gun control um, laws and norms um, when it is an active shooter situation or a school shooting in a suburb with um, uh, certain types of children as opposed to kind of community violence where um, we're mostly talking about um, uh, communities of color? Ingrid, I really appreciate uh, what is at the heart of your question, which I think, um, well, well, first, what, one of the things that I, I really wanted to respond to that you were talking about with regard to gun violence being preventable. A lot of us in society, and particularly here in the United States, we have been, I guess maybe programmed, but that may not be the right word. Our assumption is that gun violence is a, a you know, a fact of life. It's like, a, like climate change or some, some other kind of, you know, power that is impossible to address. We, we assume that gun violence is not preventable because we think of it as a tragedy. Tragedies are terrible. Tragedies are horrible. And, you know, as a, as a native Louisianian, I'm familiar with environmental catastrophic tragedies that occur. You know, uh, Hurricane Katrina was something that deeply impacted my family uh, and caused a lot of us to be scattered to the four winds uh, and many folks to move away, uh, which is part of what led a lot of my family members to leave Louisiana and to move to other places. But gun violence is not a tragedy in the same way that climate change is a tragedy. A tragedy. Gun violence is more of a crisis. Crises are the kinds of situations that are created by particular circumstances, but can be prevented if we respond to them with a proper methodology, if we, if we bring to bear the tools that we have, like policy change, we can address issues related to gun violence. And, 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 and we, we have the ability to do that, but we have to reckon with the history of the culture of violence in communities, not just in communities of color, but in the history of the culture in the United States. By that, I mean, we have to consider that the first time that many on the conservative side of politics, and I know this is going to be a little bit controversial, but for many, those on the conservative wing of politics were completely okay with a particular interpretation of the Second Amendment that allowed for folks uh, who wanted to have the right to bear arms to exhibit and demonstrate that right uh, until individuals of color, specifically black men and black folks in the context of the Black Panther Party, for example, uh, the Mumford Act was proposed uh, when then Governor Reagan uh, observed people like the Black Panthers exhibiting and demonstrating their right to bear arms with the Second Amendment in the 1960s. And it was only then that conservatives began to say, well, may wait, maybe we should put some restrictions. We should put some barriers. In fact, the first time that the NRA ever made a statement about gun control was when 
perceived black radicals began to assert their right to gun access. And so if we separate out and disconnect ourselves from the history of how gun control measures and gun control proposals began to enter the mainstream of politics in both parties, we then miss an opportunity to reckon with the racialized history of our country. The fact that in that when we talk about things like gun violence, um, we have to reckon with the fact that there have been policies that have been passed in many instances, both in urban and suburban communities, but also uh, by the federal government that, that benefit from um, the criminalization of certain communities and the representation and, and investment in other communities. We've got to deal with that history and understand it in context so that we can understand how it is that so many of these urban communities, communities of color, impoverished communities, underinvested in and under-resourced communities became so violent. We've got to look at the long arc of history as it relates to uh, the ways in which chattel slavery uh, influenced things like modern day policing, for example, which also is a source of a particular type of gun violence that is directed at a particularly criminalized and marginalized portion of the community. We've also got to look at the history of the ways in which redlining, uh, specifically not allowing certain kinds of individuals based on either their economic status or their racial identification or cultural identity to move into certain affluent communities and to be marginalized into certain kinds of deeply impoverished and underinvested in communities and how those redlining uh, principles still impact things like the redistricting process uh, in the in which poverty is concentrated, concentrated in certain areas of our cities, of our towns, and of our communities along racial and cultural and ethnic lines. Many of those things exacerbate the already profound levels of violence that occur in our communities, and they are also exacerbated both by interpersonal and inter- racial rather than, I'm sorry, intra-racial kinds of violence that occur within communities. The, the overwhelming majority of folks in white communities shoot and kill other white folks. The overwhelming majority of people in black and brown communities shoot and kill other black and brown people because of things like segregation. And so as a result of that, um, we have um, an overwhelming number of people who are impacted by things like gun violence. But what becomes the public narrative is that there is a such thing as black on black crime or brown on brown crime without there being a contextualization of the fact that most crime and most violence is intra-racial not interracial it's not one group of individuals from a particular culture or race attacking en masse other members who are outside of that racial or ethnic group it's generally individuals who are all from the same neighborhood who are targeting one another with violence, including gun violence. So that was a kind of a, a long-winded answer to kind of bringing the, the context around how community violence occurs and how it is that we get to this understanding that uh, gun violence is completely, you know, an animal that is, un, you know, is untamable and, and cannot be controlled. Because when we want to address issues related to violence, we respond with, po with policy. And oftentimes when we look at things like poverty, for example, which I believe is also a form of violence, 
when we look at things like poverty, we have to address and recognize that extreme poverty creates distress and responses to distress and trauma can trigger things like violence specifically, things like gun violence. And so uh, it's critically important that if we really want to address the root causes of gun violence in our country and in our communities, that we start first with, first with understanding the history of how we got there. And then we can begin to propose policies and talk about the, uh, the guiding principles that can lead us into a better future. But we cannot uncouple or decouple those ideas from one another. Yeah, this is um, something that is extremely important to think through as, as we think about how, you know, we are so racialized as a country that we believe we can't solve our, our problems. But what I will say is, you know, when you talked about underserved and under-resourced communities, um, it just makes me think about how, as a society, we, we've done this several times in lots of different ways around not addressing issues within Black and Latino communities that then become issues um, for the whole country. And that if we had taken the time to address uh, those issues within those communities, then we would have very clear solutions on how to address it at, at the um, you know, societal level. And we have plenty of examples of this. Uh, one example would be you know, the crack epidemic versus the opioid epidemic. So if we had done our due diligence and um, really addressed uh, the crack epidemic in a way that was empathetic and focused on addiction as opposed to criminality, then we would be able to accurately or effectively address the opioid epidemic. Um, and so I think gun violence is a great example of that. If we had taken our time as a country to address um, the issue of gun violence as the, the disease that it is, as opposed to seeing certain groups as more likely to be criminal, and so this is not something that we can actually solve or address, then we would have the answers that we need now when the um, when we look at this issue of um, mass shootings and school shootings that are overwhelmingly happening in suburban and white neighborhoods uh, or at events that are a little bit outside of Black and Latino communities, we would have a better um, grasp on what to do about this issue um, because we would have already really focused on how we would have addressed it in smaller communities um, because, um, but because those communities are under-resourced or, you know, as, um, as our, you know, our country as a whole, we, we don't care about these communities. We don't care about Black communities, Latino communities. We often under-resource them um, because we are a racialized community or racialized um, country. Uh, and this is what happens when we do that. Um, I want to kind of put a pin in this and, and come back to this conversation around how racism has played a part in all the different ways that we see this issue of gun violence and gun control. And we'll do this um, after our break. So please join us after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In this polarizing age of misinformation, it is critical to examine the lessons of the past 
on history, culture, and trauma, Ingrid Cochran, CEO of Paces Connection, and her guests will explore historical trauma and outline how our collective past shades our perception of today's world and our shared experiences. In this podcast, we will examine the impact of past atrocious cultural events and the impact of the systemic trauma of racism and poverty on the human experience. Ingrid and her guest will also outline what is needed for our collective healing. Please join us for History, Culture, and Trauma, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your life. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran. And we are back. Um, Today's discussion is really focused on gun control and gun violence, specifically community gun violence. Uh, We have our guest here, Timothy Hughes, who is a community organizer and an advocate. And before the break, we were talking about how um, really this this issue of gun violence and how we perceive it based on, you know, the perpetrator, the community uh, is really rooted in how racialized our country is and, and essentially that we are not further along in this issue because we have... um, essentially under-resourced certain communities based on race and income, which are in in this country closely aligned. Uh, And so let's kind of jump back into that conversation. Um, You brought up, um, Timothy, you brought up some things in before the break around um, redlining and housing discrimination. And so let's talk about how these kind of um, um, policy-driven issues can actually create environments where we would see more community violence, especially gun violence. That's an excellent point, Ingrid. And so I mentioned earlier in our conversation that my father was a a member of the armed services. He was in the Air Force uh, and retired after 25 years uh, of service. Um, And so uh, that that really kind of draws us back to the conversation about redlining uh, for this reason. Uh, Back in the 1940s, uh, and later on uh, in the 1960s, 
uh, after Vietnam and, and uh, World War II, uh, there were opportunities for individuals who served in the military to receive two primary benefits. Uh, one of those benefits provided for uh, uh, college education after they returned from service through the GI Bill, and the other um, provided an opportunity for folks who served in the military to receive specific support around housing, um, federal housing grants that allowed them to be able to purchase homes for very, very low cost uh, in the aftermath of these um, um, military service opportunities and challenges that they, you know, when they serve overseas, they have the opportunity to be able to receive those benefits. And so many uh, who served uh, during that time who were people of color, specifically African-Americans, uh, while they may have received the GI Bill, and had the opportunity to go away to college or university to further their education, many instances they were denied access to the assistance for how so class in the United States is expanding at the most rapid time, uh, uh, pace uh, in history at uh, that time. Um, many African-American families beneficiaries see at that time from the 1950s forward into today that many of the benefits that, that are accrued as a result of generational wealth uh, from home ownership are not present in many African-American families. Uh, even those who uh, gave uh, tremendous service to the country through military uh, service and commitment. And so uh, if, you, if we consider that overlaid with efforts by um, federal policy to uh, separate and segregate certain neighborhoods and certain communities, uh, on the basis of economic wealth and on the basis of cultural and ethnic uh, identity and ethnicity, uh, we find that there is an exacerbation of already a very, very difficult century. Uh, and so as a result of that, we see uh, overwhelmingly that deeply, deeply impoverished and under-resourced communities are overwhelmingly black and brown. And many of the communities that have the most wealth the highest property values uh, and, and have uh, the communities that are in, in most uh, invested in are communities that, that tend to be uh, overwhelmingly or, or uh, majority urban communities or urban communities. And so we fast forward to uh, a moment in time where uh, just recently we have a mass shooting incident that occurs in Highland Park, Illinois. Now Highland, Highland Park uh, geographically is about 30 minutes away from Chicago, Illinois, which has been for a long time an epicenter of a number of, you know, issues related to community violence, specifically gun violence. However, Highland Park, uh, up until this moment, um, or up until most recently, was not the site of many gun violence incidents, and certainly not the height of, uh, of the site, rather, of a mass shooting incident, uh, where some 31 individuals are either shot and injured or uh, uh, have, have lost their lives as a result of that mass shooting incident. Highland Park, in many ways, could be, I mean, might as well be an entire world away from Chicago in terms of its demographics, in terms of its economic uh, 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 vitality. The average home in a place like Highland Park is worth about a half a million dollars. We're talking about a place where, you know, uh, celebrities, Michael Jordan has a home in Highland Park. Uh, many of the most beloved films uh, in television history, like, you know, I mean, in uh, movie making history, in Hollywood history, like, you know, uh, I think it was Risky Business and, you know, Ferris Bueller's Day Off was filmed 
in Highland Park. So we're not talking about a deeply impoverished, under-resourced community. We're talking about a community that is overwhelmingly uh, very uh, upper middle class, uh, um, that that has a population that is maybe 1% uh, people of color, uh, African-Americans in particular, or maybe 1% of the residents in Highland Park. And so we're not talking about the traditional, you know, um, under-resourced or under-invested in community. And we're certainly not talking about a community of individuals who feel uh, completely marginalized from the growth and development of the what will be described as the American dream. But we still have violence that can strike even in a community that has a tremendous amount of wealth and, quite frankly, does not meet the same kinds of uh, demographic assumptions that we might see in a place like Chicago or Baltimore or New Orleans or Nashville, Tennessee, for that matter. Uh, we're talking about the fact that if we don't address through policy issues related to violence, specifically community violence brought about by guns, then we're going to see though that kind of community violence and that kind of gun violence spread beyond the borders of just urban communities, of just impoverished communities, of just black and brown communities where certain folks assume that they might otherwise be. And they will begin to happen in places and in spaces where they are not expected, where many people might not assume that they would occur. And they have a tie back to some of the kind of racial politics that I described in my earlier comments, particularly things like uh, the violent extremism that is birthed out of white supremacist ideology. Uh, apparently, the shooter in the Highland Park incident had been associated with a number of statements that were made that were anti-Semitic uh, in nature. Highland Park does have a rather long an incident uh, that was motivated by uh, anti um, uh, Jewish sentiment, maybe uh, um, anti-Semitic violence. But we see those kinds of outgrowths uh, of the, that kind of anti-cultural xenophobic violence very, very close, closely associated with white supremacist ideology. We saw it uh, in, the, um, in, in, in the aftermath or, or in the lead up to the January 6th attack on the Capitol building. There are, there's evidence of that kind of anti-Semitic, anti-cultural, or anti-xenophobic, anti-Black, um, white supremacist rhetoric, often accompanied by mass shootings and gun violence all over the country. And unless we are prepared to respond with policy that addresses some of those issues that foment such uh, ignorance and violence, unless we're prepared to try to address and deal with issues related to abject and extreme poverty in pockets of our communities, in our cities and in our towns, until we are prepared to address issues and concerns that are feeders into criminality that, that don't just uh, marginalize and further stereotype certain communities, then we will continue to see the perpetuation of this kind of violence in communities great and small. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And that kind of ties into what we discussed in the first half about how when we don't address issues in smaller communities, then what we will, we miss several opportunities. First, we miss the opportunity to, to help those people, to um, alleviate their stress and their trauma and their suffering. And then second, we miss an opportunity to find the solutions. Uh, and so as we allow for certain communities to languish in gun violence and poverty and other types of community violence, 
we miss an opportunity to address these issues on a large scale. And we, in, in like, kind of like we said before, you know, violence is contagious. So it won't just remain in those smaller communities. You will begin to see as we leave it unchecked in certain areas, you begin to see that it will be, um, you know, in suburbs and in unexpected places um, as we, um, you know, continue to, un, you know, continue this narrative that it's happening in certain areas because of skin color or because of culture. Um, so, you know, this has really brought up, you know, what are the solutions? Like, what works when it comes to addressing community violence? And even with that, how can we then kind of replicate what happens in smaller community and, and have the big picture? How can we address this gun violence issue in America as we heal in community? Ingrid, I really appreciate that question. And we've been talking a lot about um, uh, the issue of community violence. And I, I wanna bring attention back to some amazing and pioneering research and work uh, that we've been attempting to do here in the city of Nashville for a number of years, but also that got its uh, genesis and its impetus from some of the creative uh, innovation that was being uh, uh, tried in places like Chicago. And so um, I'm brought, I, I'm, I'm reminded of the fact that in Chicago, um, there was a, a, a program of community intervention. Uh, there's been a documentary that's been produced about that. Uh, that effort toward intervention called The Interrupters. Uh, it was a PBS documentary. It covers uh, the work and the efforts by individuals called uh, violence interrupters in various parts of the city of Chicago. Uh, a researcher um, um, pioneered some work around community violence. It's a cure violence model um, pioneered by um, Dr. Um, uh, oh my goodness. Of course, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forget the person's name as I'm saying it. Uh, but the cure violence model uh, Gary Slutkin, that's his name. Uh, Gary Slutkin uh, pioneered this work around community violence uh, and uh, and the cure violence model addresses in precisely the same way that you describe community violence as being infectious. It addresses it using a public health model uh, because community violence and gun violence in particular is a lot like the communicable, vi communicable virus of COVID. I mean, you know, we try to, to stop and inoculate folks from that violence through a number of methods, you know, vaccines and masks and social distancing. And so there are ways in which uh, community members and innovators and creatives are trying to address community violence in much the same way uh, as one would contain or address a public health emergency. And so because uh, that kind of violence spreads like a virus, we can try to uh, issue or in uh, initiate uh, methods to try to interrupt that violence at the very least to try to stop retaliatory gun violence uh, through methodologies and, uh, and through a number of different uh, programs and activities. And here in the city of Nashville, uh, one of the groups that's been pioneering that work uh, is a group that I work with called Gideon's Army. They've been doing a, a number of different uh, um, uh, efforts, but among them, uh, they do have a group of individuals who have uh, community connections, uh, who are credible messengers in the community, who are also violence interrupters who have a tremendous amount of training uh, and are able to address issues of community violence in the city of Nashville. And they are uh, having a tremendous amount of success. They've, re they've reduced um, uh, retaliatory gun violence in communities like North Nashville significantly. We're talking a number of percentages, like, you know, I wanna say it's something like 17% or 
or 27%, very significant uh, decreases in community gun violence in North Nashville. And they've been able to do it on a shoestring budget with very little investment and support from uh, the city uh, in an official capacity and relying almost exclusively on small dollar donations to provide support for the violence interrupters, many of whom are, are, are not, you know, simply, you know, coming into these communities, uh, but who have lived uh, for a number of years and, and in many instances, decades in communities that they're doing this work in. And so it requires a, a level of commitment and connection in relationship to communities. Uh, it requires a certain kind of credible messenger uh, who can work in those communities who understand the realities and the long-term impacts of policy violence on those communities to help them respond to the kinds of issues that they're seeing in places like North Nashville. Uh, in fact, there are specially trained uh, violence interrupters who address not only issues of community violence like gun violence, but who are present on the ground when the community needs resources and support. The violence interrupters were out in the community of North Nashville in the aftermath of, uh, of the tornadoes that struck uh, in March of 2020. They were some of the first responders who were on the ground with flashlights and with water and with support for community members who were directly impacted by those tornadoes who may have lost their homes or may have lost uh, their, their safety uh, to provide them with the additional support until groups like FEMA and until uh, the government agencies who do that work uh, full time and respond to those kinds of crises were able to do that. The violence interrupters from Gideon's Army and some of the other uh, folks in our community coalitions, uh, groups like the Equity Alliance and the NAACP and the Urban League and many of the other uh, Black-led organizations were there on the ground making sure that folks had the support that they needed. And so it's not just about responding in the aftermath of a violent incident. It's also about making sure that there are wraparound services of support uh, and communities of support that allow folks who have been deeply impacted by uh, a tragic incident like a you know, a, a climate change driven storm or uh, uh, families that are directly impacted by uh, gun violence, whether it be at the hands of an individual, a civilian uh, who may be involved in that kind of interpersonal violence that is spread out into the community or uh, in response, in many instances, to gun violence uh, that may be triggered by an interaction with law enforcement. Um, the work of Gideon's Army, the work of the Equity Alliance and many other uh, partners and organizations uh, in a coalition called uh, the Community Oversight Now Coalition gave birth to and created um, the Community Oversight uh, Program, the Metro National Community Oversight Board, uh, of which I, I, I had the uh, the pleasure and the uh, the the, um, the I was entrusted in serving uh, for a brief time on the Metro Community Oversight Board uh, of, of law enforcement, which gave an opportunity for community members to be able to speak to issues related to policing in their communities and also to be involved in helping to create policy and to address issues related to how those law enforcement officers were trained so that we could reduce the likelihood and prevent instances of uh, unarmed shootings of uh, unarmed uh, black members of the community and others who were uh, potential victims of uh, uh, gun violence at the hands of law enforcement officers who in many instances were not being um, uh, investigated or pursued for any measure of accountability uh, without the presence of uh, the Metro Community Oversight Board. And so uh, in the aftermath of the, the deaths of Jacques Clemens and Daniel Hamburg, two uh, African-American men who were shot and killed in the North National community, groups like Gideon's Army and others were on the ground to help to provide support for the families, 
uh, to make sure that they had uh, fair representation, but also to make sure that they demand a measure of accountability for those who are entrusted with the power to serve and protect in our communities. And so uh, there's a lot of work and infrastructure that's been that's gone into creating and supporting that community oversight board, but also uh, the organizations that are doing that work on the ground and responding to community gun violence uh, have to get additional support financially, uh, have to have more support from government agencies. So we're all we're able to work together as a community to support uh, the efforts to address that kind of community violence and gun violence. Because if we don't stand together and support one another as a community, then we're destined to uh, to repeat the mistakes of the past. And we're only going to uh, ultimately continue to suffer under the uh, the ongoing regime of you know community violence, which seems to be uh, unabated uh, and that uh, unfortunately seems to be spreading. Yeah, and I think that you know what you're saying is really kind of a tenet of of pace of science, which is that you know first you know relationship is kind of the cornerstone of healing. And so even your solution should be relationship focused. And then of course that healing happens within communities. And so um, as we think about how we address um, community violence, we really have to think about how we create and maintain relationships within communities. And so as you know, the Rye Center, they have a great um, visual that really helps me to think about liberation and healing. And so in that space is called Build Beloved Community. I think that, you know, what we've talked about today has been um, extremely nuanced. We've kind of covered a lot of different things, policy, housing, racism, and how it all connects to this, um, you know, our, our issue of, of gun violence within communities and how we have been um, really ineffective in addressing community violence and how that has now spread to kind of a, a national issue where we've as a country are um, ill-equipped or unable, or maybe just, um, you know, not willing to, um, or, you know, address this issue of gun violence in a real way, um, leaving us very much um, in a space where we are, you know, continually traumatized by gun violence in this country. you know, we're getting close to closing out. So I want to give you some time to talk, you know, what's the takeaway and what's next for you in your work and um, kind of put a bow on it for our audience around this conversation. Ingrid, thank you so much. First of all, thank you to your team uh, and, and the work that you're doing in the community to raise awareness about this very important issue. I know that we're getting close to time. And so I would be remiss without uh, mentioning that uh, Gideon's Army is doing a tremendous amount of work. If you're looking for an organization to support uh, who's on the ground that's addressing issues related to gun violence and community violence, please support Gideon's Army. Uh, find out more about the work that we're doing at gideonsarmytn.org. That's Gideon's Army, all one word, gideonsarmytn for Tennessee.org, gideonsarmytn.org. Um, but also for me, um, what I want the audience to take away is that while we are in a particularly challenging moment, um, there's a lot that's happening with regard to community violence, to gun violence, mass shootings. There's a d- tremendous amount of trauma that we have all been enduring with the global pandemic for COVID-19, but also the ongoing global pandemic of white supremacist ideology that impacts so many of us, uh, just, not just people of color, but all people. Um, I think that what we have to do is we've got to educate ourselves. 
We've got to learn as much as we possibly can and plug into resources that help us to understand how it is that we got to this moment, what factors contributed to the history of the racialization of, of America, and also the racialization of how policy impacts Americans. But I also think that ultimately what we have to do is we have to summon the will to work together to, to, to lean into the better angels of our nature and to do what we can as community to heal and to support one another in that process of healing. And sometimes that process can be uneven. It doesn't happen all at once. It doesn't happen immediately. There's not um, a one, you know, one, one source that's gonna fix all of the problems and challenges in our community, but collectively working together allows us to be able to bring to bear all of the collective genius that we have uh, to make positive change occur and to influence policy that will bring about change. And so I'll, I'll wrap um, the, uh, my remarks today uh, with some remarks from someone who I find tremendously inspirational, John Lewis. Uh, John Lewis talks about the importance of us all having a willingness to get into good trouble and necessary trouble. Sometimes that, re that means that we give our dollars and support to organizations like Gideon's Army who are doing the work. Sometimes it means we chip in and we volunteer to support uh, at a community center for at-risk youth. Uh, sometimes it means that we educate ourselves about unpacking our own biases and addressing our own internalized perspectives that may be counterproductive. But ultimately, we all have a role to play. We all have something that we can do to contribute to changing the world as it is and helping it to be the world as we want it to be. We all have a responsibility to get into good trouble to necessary trouble, to make a contribution in our own communities. And so um, my uh, admonishment, we make sure that you do that in, in every possible way and make sure that you are engaging in every possible method of contribution, including voting as much as you possibly can. Make sure you're registered to vote. Make sure that you avail yourself of the opportunity to vote. Uh, vote with your dollars and in your, in your influence, your, your social media. Be a part of the change that you want to see in the world. Thank you so much, Timothy. I, you know, that really resonates with us at Paces Connection. Um, it is about community and there's so many things that we can do and it is a nuanced issue. And so you do have to kind of find where you stand in that space. And so much of it is about, you know, that, that small perspective. What can I do today? So thank you so much for joining us and um, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the show today. We hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience. Join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you a beautiful week.